And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Thank you all for being here today. Father Scott and I were discussing, would we see 10 people or a bit of a full house as it were? Um, there are a lot of services taking place today. And so I was, uh, you all, I had faith in you all. I said, no, we have a devout congregation. They like to go to church. And so I said, I'm going to see some people. So I thought I better actually prepare a sermon this time uh, as I figured... <laughs> I, ha I really did have confidence in you all, so thank you. So we've made it, right? Christmas is upon us. And I'm sure, though, that there are many here asking, when was the last time the fourth Sunday in Advent intersected with Christmas Eve? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, and I can tell you the answer. So far in the 21st century, Advent 4 and Christmas Eve have, in have intersected in 2006, and in 2017, does anybody remember 2017? No, not at all, right? And of course, this year, 2023. When will it happen again? In 2028, and then in 2034. So don't get comfortable. You're gonna have to do this quite often over the next few years. And now in our Sundays in Advent, we had two preachers. Father Scott preached on two Sundays and the Reverend Allison Barfoot was with us. And so on the first Sunday in Advent, we heard about the theme of, uh, not so much a theme actually, but a call to be encouraged to not fear. And Father Scott preached on that day and he highlighted how the world is full of fear from the sickness and death of loved ones to Russia using nuclear weapons to polluted drinking water and of course the fear of economic collapse and ruin. Now, it's no understatement or profound or original observation to state that fear dominates the lives of so many people. It's right next to us. It's not an abstract concept that has no impact on, on our lives. It's within us. It has the potential and power to be crippling to us. But thanks be to God, because his perfect love casts out all fear. Thanks be to God that the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit enables and empowers those who follow Jesus to live a holy life of quiet confidence, trusting that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So as we humbly follow our King Jesus, we listen to and apply the words of angels to the servants of God. Do not be afraid. On the second Sunday in Advent, Father Scott reminded us of the life and ministry of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who was not Baptist. We were reminded that John was the last in the line of Israel's prophets. He bridged the Old Testament era and the emergence of the New Testament era. While he was the last of the prophets, he was also the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus. 
He articulated his unique place in salvation history well when he described his relationship to the Messiah by saying, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Father Scott reminded us that the baptizer was what we might call a Johnny One Note, which I had no idea what that meant. But it's a fictional man from a song written in the 1930s who only knew how to sing one note wherever he went. And the gospel accounts do present him that way. I've always admired John the Baptist. He had the ability to clear all the distractions of life from his gaze and focus on his ministry and role in being the Messiah's herald. Now it helps when you move out to the desert and you get rid of any comfortable clothes and you eat the type of food that only desert dwellers would eat. Not only did he need the Holy Spirit to fulfill his calling, he needed the Holy Spirit just to eat his meals. And I think that's funny, right? That's funny. Come on, laugh. It's, it's, it's the fourth Sunday in Advent. Thank you. I hear that back there. Now, that's a nice transition to the Reverend Allison Barfoot's word to us last week about the baptizer. She shared with us how John looked the part of a prophet. He ate the right food of a prophet. And he was just enough off his rocker that headquarters in Jerusalem had to take him seriously. Now, we like our prophets today to be well-dressed, well-spoken, and well-behaved. But if we carefully read the account of the Old Testament prophets, we'll notice that those guys acted in ways that would startle us and probably have us considering whether or not to call the police on them. I'll leave it to you to read about the prophetic behavior of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But I assure you, we would not be trying to meet these guys for a cup of coffee at Starbucks. The baptizer was cut from the same piece of cloth. Now, I like to think that I would have been friends with John, but I'm not so sure about that. Yet, John the Baptist was sounding the alarm to the people in his generation. The time to repent was upon them because God's kingdom was upon them. Would they believe the testimony of Moses, the testimony of Elijah, and his own testimony? Or would they just dismiss him and his prophetic words as their fathers did in times past? And so last week, Allison put the question to us, how many alarms do we need before we wake up and believe? Now, these previous messages bring us to another startling event in the account of the Messiah's arrival, the Annunciation. And it's our focus today. Gabriel telling Mary that she will conceive and give birth to a son, the Son of God. Jesus. Now, I've always found it challenging to rank the greatness of miracles in the Bible. Is it greater for God to part the waters, cause a donkey to speak, raise the dead, use the Jordan River to heal leprosy, open the wombs of infertile women, or to empower a virgin to conceive? My only response to such a question is yes. But there must be a special status for the miracle of the conception and eventual incarnation of the Son of God. I would argue this for no other reason than it is not a repeatable event, like his death and resurrection. Jesus would not be conceived of a virgin and born of her a second time. This would happen only once, with history-changing implications. And so for that reason, I would say that Mary's conception of Jesus ranks quite high on the list of God's greatest hits. And thanks to St. Luke's account, 
We've been blessed down through the centuries by many sharp minds that help us understand Mary's role in God's economy of salvation. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes and share a few views, not necessarily familiar and embraced by most Protestants, but quite important for us to consider this morning. Personally, I have a fondness for Orthodox theology, and especially as it's expressed within the first thousand years of church history, what's known as the patristic period in church history. Often the approach to scripture and theology is quite different than what we are used to today and in the West, but we have much to learn and to teach others from our brothers and sisters in the East. And I think Anglicanism rightly understood has expressed this. Right-believing Anglicanism has always sought to be in continuity with the teachings of the early church. In 1951, the 99th Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, stated in an interview, we have no doctrine of our own. We only possess the Catholic doctrine of the Catholic church enshrined in the Catholic creeds. And those creeds we hold without addition or diminution. Now it's important to note that the term Catholic used in this context refers to the whole church, right? As it's expressed in the creeds for the whole church. And those creeds, when were they formulated? During that period that I just mentioned, the patristic period, the period of the church fathers. That's when the church was undivided and whole. Now, as challenging as it is for us to understand that doctrine from that perspective, I think it actually turns out to be some of the most helpful. And I think, thanks be to God, many pastors in the Protestant church are rediscovering the truth, beauty, and goodness found in the patristic teachings. Emily loves, she doesn't say loves, she really enjoys listening to a preacher out on the West Coast. And he likes to sprinkle in teachings from the church fathers and from the patristic period. And then she'll come to me and she'll say, Jed, listen to this. And so then she repeats what he said. And I'm like, that's Augustine. That's St. Augustine. That's Irenaeus. That's St. Athanasius. This guy's saying nothing new. And she's like, well, it's new to me. I'm like, well, that's like, that's the way it is for a lot of us. But this is, this is the teaching. And I don't judge him that he's just now over these past few years come to this understanding I think it's great. And I consider myself blessed and thankful that when I was in training to be in ministry and to be a priest, I had to read all those guys and write papers on their works before I could read any new books. I had to read all the old books first. And there's great value in that. And that foundation that it provides, it's been invaluable to me over the years. So with that introduction, let's take a look, a patristic look, at the Annunciation to Mary. From our gospel reading, we rightly call Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God. I'm sure that title is a bridge too far for some, and I once thought that way. But again, after reading the church fathers, I think there's a good reason to call her the mother of God. I read the history of what that title, why that title would even be necessary for her. I mean, she didn't call herself that but I realized it was because of a heretical teaching about the person and work of Jesus that the title mother of God was necessary and true. You see about 1600 years ago, a certain church leader wanted to call Mary the Christotokos, the mother of Christ. 
But that title denies something about Jesus that is essential to his nature, his divinity. You see, to call Mary the mother of God is not so much a statement about Mary as it is a statement about Jesus. So in just a few minutes, we'll confess our belief in both his divinity and humanity when we say the words of the creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the whole. Formers even believed in it. Luther didn't have a problem with it. Zwingli didn't. Even John Calvin, he didn't use it a lot, but he agreed with it. And I think today when people's, so many people's bad theology and bad opinions because they watch a bad YouTube video and they think that counts as proper Christian teaching, we need to refute that with the truth. And we need to know that truth. Secondly, from our gospel reading, we also see Mary as a new Eve. In Genesis, we are told that the name Eve means mother of all living. We're also told of the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, and that childbirth and raising children will now be painful. We're told of the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And we're given the account of humanity's sinfulness in the ensuing chapters. It would require a new mother of all living, a new Eve that would bring God himself into his creation in a new way so that things could be put right. The church father, Ephraim the Syrian, who lived like 306 to 379 a few years ago, he wrote in a mystical way about the relationship between Eve and Mary and Adam and Jesus. So here's what he came up with regarding the nativity. Man imposed corruption on woman when she came forth from him. Today she has repaid him, she who bore for him the Savior. He gave birth to the mother, Eve, he the man who was never born. How worthy of faith is the daughter of Eve, who without a man bore a child. The virgin earth gave birth to that Adam, head of the earth. The virgin today gave birth to second Adam, head of heaven. Now, since I like Orthodox theology, I also like icons. And I think there's a place where icons communicate a concept very well. Heidi, if you could put that image up, I'd be helpful. This image that you're looking at, it's titled Mary and Eve. And it's by Sister Grace Remington of the Cistercian Sisters of the Mississippi Abbey in Iowa. I want you to notice the garden motif. If you can see it, the downcast face of Eve, the serpent wrapped around Eve's leg with its head under Mary's foot. Look carefully at the fruit in Eve's right hand while her left hand is being held by Mary and near the fruit of her womb. Take a moment to consider Mary's gentle gaze toward Eve, her ancestral mother. Now, as you notice these things, Listen to the poem written for this image. My mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed, do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God brought, has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child, through whom all will be reconciled. O oh, Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever, life without end. Heidi, thank you. You can take that down. Truly, Mary, the one who gave life to the life-giving king of the universe, 
can be described as the new Eve, the mother of all living. Perhaps we catch a glimpse of this in scripture when St. John records the words of Jesus when from the cross he looked to his mother Mary and John. He said, woman, behold your son. And to John he said, behold your mother. Now finally, from our gospel reading, we can understand Mary as a type of temple, tabernacle, and ark. All three of these terms hearken back to the Old Testament as dwelling places of God. But things would be much different now that God has come to his creation. No longer would the God who made the world and everything in it live in temples made by men. Now the God who made Mary would take up residence within her. The created would be inhabited by the creator. The time for the tabernacle, the ark, and the temple had come and gone. A new thing was being done. I want you to listen to the words that I'll share with you of a liturgical composition that's read in Orthodox churches on the Feast of the Annunciation, which takes place nine months prior to Christmas. It's a rendering of the conversation between Gabriel and Mary that helps communicate the church's teaching on the Annunciation. It's not meant to replace St. Luke's account. It's meant to flesh it out. It would be read by two readers responsively so the full effect would be experienced. I'll start with Gabriel, then go to Mary, then finish with Gabriel. So Gabriel states, rejoice, lady, rejoice, most pure virgin. Rejoice, God-containing vessel. Rejoice, candlestick of the light, the restoration of Adam and the deliverance of Eve. Rejoice, holy mountain, shining sanctuary. Rejoice, bridal chamber of immortality. And Eve responds, the descent of the Holy Spirit has purified my soul. It has sanctified my body. It has made me a temple containing God, a divinely adorned tabernacle, a living sanctuary, and the pure mother of life. Gabriel responds to her, I see you as a lamp with many lights, a bridal chamber made by God, spotless maiden as an ark of gold. Receive now the giver of the law, who through you has been pleased to deliver humankind's corrupted nature. It's been my experience growing up with an evangelical Protestantism to quickly highlight just how common and ordinary Mary was when Gabriel visited her. On the one hand, I do not and cannot refute that. But on the other, I'm not so sure that our labels of common and ordinary deny the reality of her unique role in salvation history. Only a few moments ago, we sang in the hymn of the Father's Love Begotten, we described Mary as the virgin full of grace. And I think that's right. I don't see these aspects of commonality and ordinariness and her special status as mutually exclusive. To be sure, there's a tension to be held, but these things are not mutually exclusive. And I find so much in our Christian faith, there's a tension to be held. Think about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. There's a tension to be held there. So where does that leave us this morning? Did you learn anything new about how we might consider the Blessed Virgin Mary? Were you comforted by anything you heard? Were you challenged by anything you heard? 
did things go too far down the orthodox rabbit hole? And now something more familiar is needed to provide balance. It wouldn't be unreasonable for that to be the case for some in here today. Most of us in the Western church are not too familiar with reading scripture through an allegorical lens, and it can take some getting used to for that to bring comfort. But do not dismiss this way of reading and interpreting scripture. Don't say to yourself, I don't need to consider these things or think of things this way. It's good for Father Jed and others, but I don't need it. The truth is you do need it. It's good for you. It was written and taught for you. You are part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. There's so much for us to ponder and consider as we take the time to read and learn from old books that have fallen out of fashion. When we dismiss them, we do this to our detriment. What the church Catholic taught in ages past has much relevance for the church Catholic in the present age. So we do ourselves no favor when we sit down for sacred reading, we go to our favorite authors and our favorite books and our favorite time periods. Don't do that. That's a bad habit. Get out of doing that. But being raised in a Protestant evangelical tradition, I need to preach like one. And so I'll take a few more minutes to provide that balance. I've given us allegorical interpretations but what is the passage trying to get at? What is Luke trying to share with us in verses 26 through 38? Well, I think we actually need to read verses 8 through 23 to really understand our passage. We don't have time to do that. So let me just summarize. Gabriel visits someone else and he shares a very similar message. Your wife will give birth. She'll conceive and give birth. And he gives a message of the greatness of the child that's to be born. And then just a few verses later, Gabriel comes to this young woman, this young girl. We've already been primed by reading the account between Gabriel and Zechariah for Gabriel and Mary. The two are linked. To read one apart from the other is actually not helpful. I was reading in a commentary, the, the flow of thought and the progression of elements, there's no less than nine progression of elements that are the same in Gabriel's conversation with Zechariah and Gabriel's conversation with Mary. It goes the same way. And if you go line by line, there's at least 10 lines that line up almost verbatim. I don't think that's coincidence. They're clearly meant to be read together. But there are some distinctions. Zechariah, when Gabriel visited him, Luke says he was troubled and then fear fell upon him. When Gabriel visited Mary, Luke says she was greatly troubled, but then considered what kind of greeting Gabriel gave her. She never got scared. Zechariah, he was scared. He was absolutely frightened. Not so with Mary. And I must share these accounts, I don't really like them in a certain way because they don't make a priest look good. <laughs> you see, the one who is just a breath away from the Holy of Holies in the temple, the very dwelling place of God, he misses it entirely. He does not understand and doesn't have the faith to trust in Gabriel's words. 
Celtic Christianity talks about thin places where heaven and earth meet. And you can sense, there's a palpable sense of God's presence. The temple, right outside the most holy place, that's a thin place. And the priest missed it. And then we go to the backwoods of Nazareth. A nothing town where there's a nothing girl. No status. Nothing about her any angel should come to her and say, God will dwell within you. Zechariah wasn't wrong from a human nature when he said, how will I know this? Another way of asking for a sign. He wasn't wrong. But Mary was right. She didn't ask for a sign. She asked for an explanation. How will this be since I am a virgin? So what's the application? I don't know. I don't know where you all are today. I know where God is inviting me to participate with him in ways that I see could be impossible. Ways that don't make me comfortable. Ways that I don't fully understand. And he's saying, trust me. Where is God inviting you? to participate in the reunification of heaven and earth. That's what we're talking about here, right? This is salvation history, heaven and earth coming together once again as God intended. And where does God come to you and say, join me, do this for me, be my servant here. Is it a conversation at school with a friend? Is it a conversation with a family member? Is it a neighbor that you don't know their names? Man, the bishop got us good when he asked all the clergy if we knew the names of eight of our neighbors around us, and we all hung our heads. Well, I I like to talk to people, so I actually do know the names of eight of my neighbors. But there are some that I don't. Am I willing to reach out to them? What is impossible for you? And then give that to God. As Gabriel said, nothing will be impossible for God. Maybe even believing in Jesus, maybe even believing in God is impossible for you right now. That's okay. There's grace. Zechariah couldn't see it. He got put on the bench for nine months. I'm sure Elizabeth liked it that her husband couldn't talk. Emily's dying for that to happen with me. (laughs) But there's grace. But then stop doubting and believe. Find yourself. Read these accounts carefully. Find yourself with Mary, the new Eve, the tabernacle, the mother of the one who is God. And when you find herself, say what she said. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.